Thank you for tuning in to the Unjiggered Podcast. If you enjoy listening, please consider subscribing and giving us a rating on your podcast service of choice. Also, don't forget to like and tag us on Instagram at unjiggered underscore media. Thank you to everybody for listening, and now on with the show. You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. Our guest this week is Edmund Wheel, owner of Nightjar, co-founder of Swift, and a resident of the top 50 best bars list for almost a decade. So sit back and enjoy our chat with Edmund. So yeah, my name is Edmund Bile. I've been a bar owner uh, since uh, 2010 when we opened Nightjar uh, in Shoreditch. Since then, we've opened uh, three more bars, one called Oreo, uh, and then with Bobby and Mia, uh, Bobby Hiddleston and Mia Johansson, we opened the first Swift in 2016. And then uh, the second one in the middle of a pandemic in this uh, year just past 2020. <laughs> Great. And thank you very much for finding the time. So it is quite interesting, uh, like you mentioned the fact that you've been in bars before, but I would like to know what is your uh, background? Like, how did you, what did you study at, at what stage of your life did you think opening a bar was the thing you wanted to do? Uh, well, I mean, funnily enough, my first job was in a bar um, when I was actually just under 18. And I, I still can't believe they didn't actually check, uh, ask me for ID. It was quite a loose pub just around the corner from my house called the Cock Tavern. Like, you know, a classic London <laughs> football pub with, you know, shit hot sort of, you know, uh, Cornish pasties and burgers and, uh-huh. and, you know, a shitty little nightclub downstairs where you would make like Jager bombs and Jack Daniels and Coke all night. Um, but I did love it, you know, and uh, I think you know, ever since I had that affinity for it. Uh, and uh, so after that, after leaving school, I went to university in Dublin, uh, Trinity College. Oh, cool. Um, and did a little bit of working, like silver service, working in pubs, and a lot, a lot of drinking in pubs. Um, <laughs> and, and to be honest with you, uh, even at university, like, you know, obviously, you know, uh, this was like kind of 2001, 2005. You know, in Dublin, there wasn't really much of a cocktail scene at all. So, you know, it was, it was all very much pubs. You know, there was a few, a couple of kind of like trendy vodka bars where you did not get like, you know, Kapiroshka or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you know, I've always, I, I always loved hospitality. I love throwing parties and stuff like that in university. But at that point, a career in hospitality was really not something I was considering in the slightest. Um, I did. I, I met my now wife at university. Actually, we've been together ever since. Uh, and Rosie, she's my business partner as well. And I guess if you're looking for like the root of of, of the direction you went in the end. Um, it was, we did have a dream. So Rosie is a singer herself. Uh, and we used to go, mm-hmm. we used to love and go and see like jazz and cabaret shows together. And we found that, you know, these, these shows often with really amazing artists, like nine times out of 10, it would be like in the back room of the pub, you know, mm-hmm. um, with a few chairs thrown in there. And we kind of felt like this, you know, some of these great performances that we saw, we just looked at each other and said, you know, it deserves a better place, a better place to showcase it. Um, and so we kind of dreamed of opening like a music venue, cabaret bar type thing back then in like 2004, 2005. But it was the classic kind of like last year of university, you know, before you know you've got to go and get a real job, mm-hmm. kind of pipe dream back then. Uh, and, you know, we put that in the back of our minds. And then I went to work, you know, did work experience in finance, ended up working in uh, kind of corporate communications, like very kind of office type mm-hmm, jobs. Mm-hmm. But one thing I learned quite quickly was that I was not an office kind of person. Uh, and, you know, I had, a, I had a degree in English literature and Spanish. You know, I didn't really have any proper preparation for the world of work. So, you know, I would throw myself into this and throw myself into that. And then back in 2006, so after a couple of years out of uni, I actually went to become a teacher. Um, oh, really? In a program called Teach. Yeah, yeah, that was my first, like, career move, where it's like, okay, this is something I want to try because I think I'll be really good at that. Um, I did a program called Teach First, which meant that we didn't have to do a qualifying year of teaching, like a, a learning year. You would go straight into the classroom and learn on the job. But the only condition is that you had to go into like one of the worst, most challenging schools in the country. And I think the idea was to get like young, energetic people who might have gone into a corporate career to, to try something different. Uh-huh. 
uh, and it was crazy. I, went, I was in a school called Walthamstow Academy up in East 17. Um, very, very crazy kind of place, actually. Why was it crazy? Like, what, what made it crazy? Well, it was a place without real discipline. Uh, it was a melting pot in terms of ethnicities, like 70% of the kids spoke English as a second or third or fourth language. Whoa. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you know, there was quite a strong gang presence in the area. You know, it was, it was a crazy place. Like, you know, there was a, there was a new head who was coming in and trying to put discipline in place, but it was the kind of place, I mean, I, I know anyone who's gone to school, like, you know, a good school is a place where you're really scared shitless of the headmaster or headmistress. Uh-huh. And the kids just didn't care here. Like when it came to discipline, you were on your own. Like you know, if you had, if you wanted to, if you wanted to like get their parents in to talk to them or anything like that, there, there was very little backup. Um, but I did have an amazing couple of years. Like worked harder than I've ever worked in my life, and that includes opening a bar. Um, you know, to to actually survive and to get things right, you had to just be on the ball the whole whole time. Yeah, it was it was endlessly challenging. But like I think part of that really gave me an appetite for like hard work uh, <laughs> and also i think it, it's the same quality i think of a lot of people who end up choosing hospitality for a career which is that that feeling of uh that i'm I, i'm only at my best when i'm under severe pressure you know and it's almost like i can't flick that switch unless things unless the shit is hitting the fan. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people identify with that, you know, uh, because you know, working in a busy bar, you know, or busy restaurant, you know, and in a, in a successful place where the standards are really high, you know, there is that constant energy where, like, you know, if one thing goes wrong, then things start to fall apart, and so everyone is committed to, you know, being part of that manic energy. And I think, well, the school, unfortunately, well, there were some teams that worked really well, but like it was more individualistic thing as a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and the workload was just insane. So I did that for two years, um, which was the commitment when you went into this program, you would do two years. Okay. So, so you finished your, like you, f- you fulfilled your, the entirety of your. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, the way the program works, a lot of people then go on to work in like corporate law firms or banks or like, you know, uh, and then about 50% of them stay in, in teaching. Okay. Uh, and I was already, I was already sure that I wasn't kind of keen for this corporate career. Um, but also I wasn't sure about whether I wanted to be a teacher for the rest of my life as well. And obviously it was 2008 when I stopped, when I finished as a teacher full time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not so, the best time, is it? To start to look for a corporate career. It wasn't the best time, no. <laughs> but it was also like that kind of atmosphere where it was like, kind of, well, hell, if we don't try this now, we're never going to try it mm-hmm. as well. So I spoke to Rosie, my then girlfriend, now wife, and like, you know, it's something that's been in the back of my mind the whole time. Like, obviously, everyone owned, everyone dreams of owning a bar. Mm-hmm. And we said, look, you know, look, why don't we dust off these plans? Um, Roisin at the time was working at Christie's, the auction house. Ah, okay, um, yeah. Yeah, and also doing some like creative production as well, so like quite art side of things. And yeah, so we just, I said, look, let's give this a go, let's see what happens. But bear in mind, this was with, you know, almost no experience. You know, I'd worked in pubs, you know, very simple, kind of pulling pints, you know, gin and tonics with three ice cubes type shit. Um, <laughs> and. And so it was really like a jumping off point of, uh, of like nowhere. But we had this idea. We had this idea. You know, by this point, I think, you know, the cocktail revival had kind of really come along quite a lot. You know, obviously, uh, there was a lot of kind of inspiring blogs starting to come out. And uh, I remember particularly uh, the Ted Hay book, Vintage Spirits and Forgotten Cocktail, yep. was like a real inspiration for me as well because we all, I always loved history, vintage, I loved the Art Deco period, uh, I loved the design of it, everything like this, and starting to see some authentic recipes that were coming out of you know, this history I, was really inspiring for me as well. And it fitted perfectly into this idea of like a jazz club, like a speakeasy bar that we kind of had you know, back when we left university. But I also think that one of the turning points, like you mentioned the Vintage Spirits and Forgotten Cocktails, but it's also books like Imbibe, and it was like this whole uh, uh, cocktail historian movement that basically allowed us to actually have some 
truth to what like bartending was about and like what the real recipes yes. were and it sort of like faded away some of the myths around bartending i think made it more of a real profession kind of thing around oh definitely definitely yeah it, it gave the whole thing a feeling of authenticity indeed mm-hmm. um and i guess also like you know a feeling of cool as well because like you know if genuinely like you know if you think back to obviously there were cocktail bars like lab which were show, yeah, you know, really showing the way mm-hmm. even before this time but like you know, if, you, if you went to a cocktail bar in dublin back in 2003-2004 you know it's the kind of place where you know guys with fake tan and low-cut tops would go you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> never mind the girls exactly <laughs> uh, and so yeah absolutely and I think, you know, we were really caught up in that cocktail revival. We were making cocktails at home. And as part of the idea, you know, okay, we're going to try and do this. So I, I went and did um, like a, a couple of cocktail courses at Shaker Bar School, which actually back then was, was located in Shoreditch. I, rem- uh, I remember seeing videos about it, if I'm not mistaken. They had videos yeah, on YouTube. No, no, it was a really good school. Yeah, a really good school. And actually, it's, it's a very funny uh, story because on that same, like, introduction to classic cocktails course there was a guy called benja a mexican guy called benja on it okay and it just so happened that um you know benja padronovoa who's the owner of limantur yeah, yeah. in mexico hey, yeah. was had the same idea basically Shit, you know i want to open a bar <laughs> but i don't know anything um <laughs> So we thankfully we both happened to be on that cocktail course. No way, um, seriously. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That that was the course uh, you needed so to did... do if you wanted to be a bar operator. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's but it's 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 impossible to overstate like quite how much of a rookie I was when when, when you know going into opening a bar. Like, you know, it was okay, I'm gonna learn about cocktails, then you know, I need to get a job making cocktails, so I went to work in Shoreditch House just shortly after it opened. Um but you know, I had this kind of year period of limbo where I left teaching, I didn't have a full time job. Um I was working part time in, in Shoreditch House and then I was doing cover shifts, cover teaching, because it paid much better than bartending. Mm-hmm. Where you know you'd be part of an agency and they'd throw you, oh yeah, do you want to go to Croydon to fill in this day? Uh, okay. And <laughs> there was there was quite a few days where I would like finish a function at four in the morning uh, at Shoreditch House and then like have to kind of dust myself off, have a couple of hours sleep, no get way. a shower, and then go, <laughs> hangover teacher. Going to be <laughs> that sounds awful. Yeah, to be the, the the cover teacher. I'm you know the cover teacher. Yeah. Everyone knows what happens to the cover teacher. <laughs> um, that, but again, you know, it prepares you, doesn't Indeed. it, for, mm-hmm. for, for the grind of opening a bar. Um, and then in 2009, like about a year later, we found this little site in Shoreditch that would become my drives. A crazy place. It had been shut down by the police because they were like selling drugs in there. It's called Victoria Russian Nightclub. Um, what? Sorry. <laughs> so, so the previous venue, yeah, uh, before Nightclub was Victoria Russian Nightclub. My God, um, <laughs> that's an awesome name, though. <laughs> and I'm not joking. It looked like a survival horror video game. <laughs> uh, it was, it was absolutely horrible. Um, and uh, and it had been closed for I don't know a couple of months because the police had raided it and the guys had melted away. So the landlords of the building were really quite desperate to find a tenant. And uh, yeah, my God, it smelled so bad. I remember the first like five days in there, I was like hacking rotting plaster out of the food. Uh. Like massive spiders behind. You wouldn't believe. But uh, again, the funny thing is that being in that period where the world's finances were really in quite a bad mm-hmm. state and like there wasn't a huge amount of investment going into hospitality in some ways obviously that's really really bad but you know at the other side of it it means you get opportunities that you would never get when things are booming in terms of property and like you know if you look i think 2009 new opened and again they got that site on rivington street which would have not been available to an independent opening their first part and then we found Nigel, and then like I think just a few months later, Happiness the Guest was open again, Hogston Square, like really prime locations. And like for the first five years, I was paying twenty four thousand pounds rent at Nigel, which allowed us to make a lot of mistakes, uh, which we duly did, of course. Sorry to to ask, okay, but how did you go about looking for a venue? Did you know what you had in mind, or was that something? Because like finding a venue in London is notoriously difficult. Yeah. 
again, definitely not as difficult. I mean, look, it's about to get a lot easier for obvious reasons, mm-hmm. uh, I would say. And that any, any independent who's got a little bit of finance, you know, like I had my grandfather left me some money, mm-hmm. like not a lot, but enough to like get started. Um, so yeah, if, if someone's lucky enough to have a little bit of capital now, they're going to get some great deals. You know, obviously it's sad because it's someone else's dreams who've fallen into dust, mm-hmm. but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. And yes, we spent a long time. And bear in mind, you know, I left my job in the summer of 2008 with the dream of opening a bar and we opened Nightjar in November 2010. So it took a long time, uh-huh. for sure. We did have a kind of clear idea of what we wanted to do. We wanted a place that had live music, obviously. Uh, we wanted a kind of speakeasy place. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, we opened the company Speakeasy Entertainment in 2008 and we did a few gigs and a few little bits and pieces of events here and there. And I guess the speakeasy thing makes things easier because it means you can go to basement venues and you know you can pay much less rent and stuff like that but still it took a long long time and like we went through a lot of places that weren't right for whatever reason before finding that but i think i kind of believe when you're opening a bar like fate has a lot a lot to play and like you know this horrible basement you know uh, in a place that at the time probably you know in 2010 like uh, it was round the corner from Shoreditch, but it was very much off pitch. You mm-hmm. know, it wasn't. It wasn't like a super prime location. Um, but when we got down there, it was like it felt right. You know, because actually there was quite a lot more like internal walls down there. When we first went down there, we knocked out a few walls and put some box sprays in to support it. We spent quite a lot of money doing that because we wanted people to be able to see the music. Mm-hmm. But it had. It was a place with nooks and crannies. You know. Yeah. And you know, I think for that kind of speakeasy, dark glowing atmosphere that works really well and so yeah i mean it's it's a weird shape Niger, and like you know in hindsight there's things i've done differently i'd have put a lot more back a house in yeah for example <laughs> um, i heard something about the fact that about the cost of uh, ice of how much ice you guys have to buy because you don't have an ice machine it took us two years to work out that we needed a 130 kilo ice machine uh, but like, you know, still we spend, I mean, all of our bars spend silly money on ice because of, you know, everybody's obsession with block ice. Mm-hmm. Um, a noble obsession, I might add. Um, <laughs> uh, and yeah, we're actually looking at trying to get a climb bell into Swift Shoreditch for that exact reason. But yeah, like, again, I'm going to go back to the idea that I was utterly clueless when we opened Nightjar in so, so many ways, you know, I've the closest I've been to like managing a venue was like running a few functions in what was then the bowling alley at Shoreditch House. I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to show people a good time. And, you know, that's, that's still our company motto. You know, we're here to show people a good time. But, you know, in many respects, I didn't have the first idea of, of what to do. And like, you know, I think a lot of Nightjar's success has got to do with blind luck. I mean, and I think the same is true for, for most entrepreneurs and most successful, you know, enterprises. Um, timing and, and you know combinations of people and stuff like that but uh, do, do, don't you think that the fact that uh, perhaps you weren't uh, as like a very well established bartender or operator in London sort of gave you a new fresh approach that allowed you to stand out because for instance I think the fact that you know you sort of developed this love of, uh, for music for live music in venues in Dublin and then you sort of brought that concept in London which somehow I think it wasn't that well developed because where else would you find live music if it wasn't for a five-star hotel or, yeah, or some like absolutely. dedicated jazz bar, right? Exactly. And I think that's something, that's one thing we put our finger on the pulse of. And it was something that, you know, for me, there's this immense romance of these old movies or like, you know, Bugsy Malone or, you know, uh, The Untouchables, like this idea of, uh, you know, a, a camera panning down some stairs, maybe through a kitchen, and then into this other world of, of, of music and champagne and martinis and cocktails. And, uh, and that's, I knew that that's what we wanted to capture. And the thing about music back then was that a lot of people didn't even have a record player. Like, you know, live music was there to, to be part of the bar, mm-hmm. you know, to be part of the atmosphere. Uh, and then, you know, as music has gone on and recorded music has become so much more prevalent, like, you know, live music, especially jazz, you know, a lot, a lot had this kind of reverence around it, where it's like, you know, oh, you know, if you cough, someone will go shush. Mm-hmm. You know? Or even if you go to Ronnie Scott's, which is an amazing venue, and they actually do quite good drinks as well. But in the main Ronnie Scott's, like, you can't even get up and dance. 
you know, you'll have you'll have security coming over telling you to sit down. Um, you know, you can hear a pin drop when the show is on. And like, you know, those guys are great musicians mm-hmm. and they deserve that. But what we wanted to do, we wanted we wanted great live music to be a part of the great night out. We didn't want it to be the main event. Uh, but neither did we want it to be like elevator music. Like, you know, there are certain hotel lounges where you'll go to and basically someone's just tinkling on the piano, you know. We wanted it to be part of the atmosphere. And I think that's, yeah, that we did manage to hit the nail on the head with a few trial and errors, I have to say. Uh, and then I think obviously, we, yeah, how did we get lucky? Well, we, we, we met a designer who's now a world famous designer, a guy called Libra, furniture, lighting, stuff like that. At that time, he was shortly out of art college, and he was doing. He would do your bar design for five thousand pounds. Whoa! Uh, bear in mind. Yeah. That I bet bear that has mind, changed a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No shit. Well, he quoted for Ariel, and it was fifty grand. He's like, "I'll do you a favor, fifty grand." Um, but fair play to him. Um, but bear in mind, this wasn't like a proper design with like elevations and construction drawings and stuff like that. Uh, it was like a ring binder. Okay. Like this is how the wall should look, uh-huh. you know. And so we had we had a lot of work to do to get from that design to like a final. Mm-hmm final uh, uh, fit out and I think we bankrupted our builder as well in the process really um, yeah. I mean I, to be honest this is an awful thing to say but I almost think if you don't bankrupt your builder you're doing the wrong thing um, <laughs> good to know but, uh, yeah so we got this design and it was a beautiful design it took a little while to wear in and then also we met Marion Beck um, and actually at the time I had been planning to open Nightjar with uh, a colleague of mine a shortish house really nice guy but then he got cold feet, like, basically after we'd started filling up, filling out the bar, and basically I couldn't raise him on the phone. I was like, okay, well, we're going to have to find another bar manager. Um, so we actually went by Adam, uh, Adam Creed, the guy who owned Shaker, mm-hmm. and Marion had also been through that bar school when he arrived uh, in London. Um, and, and, and Adam said, okay, well, you know, um, we were kind of, I asked Adam to help with a few bits and pieces, you know, of like, teaching us how to open a bar, introducing us to brands, stuff like that. Um, on one of the kind of bar calls that we did, so we were going to places like Lounge Bohemia, uh, obviously, El Camion, mm-hmm. and Montgomery Place, of course, which is one of the great lost bars of London, in my opinion. Uh, and at the time, Marion had left Montgomery Place shortly before, and we were drinking there, and he just happened to be there at the bar having a drink. And Adam, who to be taking him on the shaker course was like, hey, Marion, come on over. How's it going? So we just got talking and it just happened. Marion was in a place where he was looking for a new project. And uh, one thing led to another. And then, you know, all of a sudden, this kind of like bar idea that we had, had Marion Beck as bar manager. <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, obviously what happened with my char, you know, Marion and what he was doing at the time to take a lot of credit. Um, and I think also, our lack of experience on the bar side meant that we let him do stuff that nobody else would have let him do. <laughs> you know? Um, like, I look back at some of the GPs of our drinks in the first year, and I'm like, geez, this is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that that's actually, like, speaks volumes about you as an individual, because you end up hiring what you believed was the best individual to do the job, and you just gave him the tools to perform, you know? And I'm sure there are lots of mistakes yeah. that, that went with it. But to be honest, it's uh, Niger is such an influential bar because you guys opened in 2010. 2011, yeah. you were already in 50 Best. Uh, you've been a bar within your company has been in 50 Best since, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. And everywhere you go around the world, you go, you know, when you visit the city and they take you around bars and everything. And then you know for a fact that it doesn't matter where you go, you're going to go through a Niger copy somewhere in the world. Someone who just went yeah, to Niger, yeah, yeah. <laughs> saw Maria or Luca Cidali exactly. or, 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 or anyone making a drink behind that bar and thought, you know what, I have to do that in Poland. And then boom, yeah. you know, it's crazy. Like it's been yeah. such an influential you almost, venue. You could almost play bingo. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Going around. Um, and yeah, like, you know, and I think, yeah, that it's one of those things where it was not the thing that you know, a seasoned bar operator would do, mm-hmm. which was, you know, just, you just you just give Mayor in his head. And like, you know, we did have to refine it year on year to become a properly profitable bar. But like, you know, then it became a, a nice balance between, you know, Marion who's you look at his level of creativity is is off the charts, you know. Um 
And I think, you know, actually together, we learned a lot about the bar business through trial and error. Um, and, you know, you can see the direction that we've gone with the Gibson. We still managed to make that unbelievable Baroque a style of drinks where, like, everything is experiential and trying to engage all of the senses. He's made it work financially, you know, and in a way that, you know, I was, by the end, probably holding him back from at night, Um uh, so, like, you know, I think it, it speaks a lot that, like, a lot of people uh, ask me, and sure how the hell do you make a profit? And the first year or two, I would have been like, dude, search me, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, I mean, part of it, I think, yeah, the first two years was the fact that, like, Rosie and I were both working 100 hour weeks and not taking a salary. Well, that for sure helps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> helps with profitability somehow, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. And also the rent, the rent, you know, we were paying less than £2,000 a month in rent. No, just over £2,000 a month in rent. And whenever you go from a jumping off point like that with rent, it's always going to hold it down to a reasonable level. So even though we're paying like, you know, another 50, 60% on top of that now, if you started it, yeah, if you started at 40k, then you'd be up to 60 or 70k mm-hmm. by now. So that was really, really helpful. Um, so a couple of questions to wrap up on Niger. Um, first of all, uh, I would like to talk to you about perhaps some of the mistakes that you guys have done in the past. One, one specifically, which I remember quite vividly, it's the whale skin episode. Uh, are you? Do you want to talk about that? Like, I'm very happy to talk about it. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it was it was an interesting one, um, uh, and actually, it's the one time where my work in corporate communications actually came in useful uh, because my job, you know, back then I was working quite a lot on the crisis management side of things. And so like for reference for people who don't know about whale gates, as we now call it. <laughs> so we had a cocktail. Interestingly enough, this was a cocktail. So Marion had been, Marion obviously lost Japan in the East and he'd been up in Japan and he was at the big fish markets uh, trying to buy things that he thought were interesting. And he had a sort of like a conversation in kind of like badly translated English and Japanese. And he bought these kind of sheets of um, sort of leathery kind of, it was almost like leathery parchment paper. And as far as he understood it, this was the skin of a whale that he bought. And he tried infusing it in different things. And I think it was actually initially for a Grand Rue competition or a Jamboree concept thing that he infused this stuff. Um, into whiskey and into Jamburi and like people thought, wow, this is actually really interesting. The flavour was very, very deep. It was like filled your mouth and trigeminal. And look, it was pretty fishy, I'm not going to lie. But uh-huh. it also had, <laughs> you know, kind of notes that made you really kind of like evoke like the ocean, like the deep sea. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and so uh, having, done it, having done it for a couple of presentations and it was really well received, um, he wanted to put it on the menu. And from my point of view, I was like, look, if you bought it legally, then look, you know, let's give it a go, let's try it. Um, and so it went on the menu, and actually, I think it was on the menu for a year before anyone picked up on it. But then when someone did pick up on it, uh, it, <laughs> it was, um, it went, it, it, things got a little bit out of control. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, quite rightly, people feel very strongly about uh, uh, endangered wildlife. Uh, and funnily enough, I, you know, I took the time to probably educate myself and my staff on this after, after the incident <laughs> okay. happened. But one day during a prep session, there was a ring on the bell. Um, about six different police officers were outside. And they were like, hello, we're, we're from the Wildlife Crime Unit. Wildlife Crime Unit. <laughs> you must have been so confused. I was very confused. And um, it, was, it was a bit of a shock, I won't lie. Marion wasn't there at the time. So they said, look, you know, we've been told that you've got prohibited uh, animal products and under the you know, Endangered Species Act, you have a warrant to search your premises. So I gave them this infusion bottle and uh, the remaining like sheets and said, oh, take it away, sure, so we have no idea. And, uh, you know, they went away and said, look, we'll get in touch with you, we're going to analyse it and see if there's any case to answer, etc., etc." And I thought, wow, that was that was intense, but oh well. Anyway, it turns out that someone's leaked it to the press as well. And so then there was like the Sunday Times wildlife editor asking for comment that night. And like 
yeah, yeah, it's the first time you kind of feel like little beads of panic breaking out on your forehead. <laughs> um, uh, and like, you know, it became a story and it got run by quite a few national news outlets. Um, and here we were being like, shit, you know, we didn't like it, we don't call it legal. But at the same time, you know, you're, you certainly can't, you look at your, you look at what you've done, you're like, you know what, that was so stupid in hindsight. Like, you know, why would you even risk something like that? Uh, and also, like, I actually do feel quite strongly about endangered species and, you know, not fishing whales and stuff like that. Um, uh, so, yeah, it was a big mistake. Um, luckily, I mean, this is the one thing that you learn in a corporate crisis. If you've done something wrong, you've got to get ahead of it. You've got to hold your hand up and you've got to say, mea culpa, you know, you got it wrong. So we immediately sent a statement out, not just to the press, but to all of our newsletter Um basically saying, and I think on social media, which wasn't such a big thing back then, but uh, basically saying, like, you know, we made a big mistake, we're really sorry. We worked out, actually, all of the money we had made selling that cocktail and delivered it to Whale and Dolphin Conservation. Uh, oh, that's cool. Uh, so we made a donation of about six or seven thousand pounds. But, uh, yeah, we just put it out there, and, you know, we did get quite a few people emailing us and saying, sorry, we're not going to drink in your bar, we discussed it, but we did. Fair enough. Um, but for every one of those, there were ten people saying, "Look, everyone makes mistakes. We know we love what you do. Uh, carry on doing what you're doing." And so it's one of those things where it's a combination. I think the social, the age of the social media pylon wasn't quite there yet, so it was like there wasn't that same kind of thing. We did actually get a few people calling us out on Facebook, and the hilarious thing is that. <laughs> this one guy who's like, you're such stupid bastards, you're so bad for the environment. Someone in the industry who should remain nameless. I remember like four or five years later, they were in Oslo eating whale in a restaurant and posting <laughs> it on social media. <laughs> and like, it took every fibre of strength in my body not to call them out myself. Well done. Um, <laughs> not worth it. <laughs> uh, but then obviously from then on, we had a very, put a very strict policy in place on animal welfare. And actually, you know, ended up saying, no, we're not going to use Kopi Duvet Coffee, for example, because there's no way to be sure that those animals haven't been quite badly abused in producing the, the civic coffee. So how good it tastes, you know, you're not going to use something like that. So, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was, it was quite an episode, but I think we also responded to it in the right way. I agree. Uh, final question about Niger. I don't know how you felt about it from the inside, but from the outside, there were elements of it that uh, certain parts of the industry felt they were quite controversial. I think it's natural for bars that are quite groundbreaking to sort of generate this sort of controversy. D did you feel any of that pressure from inside or did you feel that you had to change what you were doing because of it? I mean, the funny thing is that I think certainly initially I was kind of blissfully unaware of it. You know, I was just there running a bar, like, you know, bear in mind that, like, I got to know the industry very, very well in the, in the last 10 years. But, you know, I didn't have that kind of knowledge and understanding of the industry and how it works and uh, the good and the bad of it. And so, at least initially, you know, before we started hitting up to the towards the top of 50 Best, like, I was just running my business, running my bar, trying to show people a good time. And I was very unaware, to be honest. I mean, I do remember, like, you know, at one point, I think Steve Schneider dropped Marion's name at the door, and Marion was like, yeah, so who, who is this? You know? <laughs> like, I think there were quite a, lot of, quite a lot of incidences where people, important people who might have expected a little bit more red carpet rolled out, didn't get it, and that's partly because I didn't even know who they were, uh -huh. you know? It's like, oh, Dale DeGrosse here. Um, cool story. Yeah. And like, you know, Marion's <laughs> like, no, <laughs> no one sits, no one sits at the bar. So Dale DeCroft like kind of sat on quite a shitty table, you know, with his friends. Because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know who he was. I didn't know how important he was. Uh, and Marion didn't care. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think, uh, I became aware later on. And I think that, uh, I think that certainly there were times in Niger where, like, the drinks were more important, too important. You know, I was there, like, managing, like, the live music, doing the sound engineering, making sure that people were having a good time on the floor. And I think that there was a time where, like, the drinks and the making of the drinks and the primacy of that um, got in the way of the guest experience a little bit. Um, 
And I think, you know, you learn that over time. Uh, so, you know, there were times where the drinks would take too long to come up, mm-hmm. for example. Um, uh, and to start off with, I was just like, well, look, that's just the way it is. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, and then gradually together, we started working out ways. Um, that, I mean, bear in mind that I believe at the start of Nightjar, like there was almost no pre-batching. Like we would home make a shit ton of ingredients. We'd home make our own orgeat, you know, we'd home make our own grenadine every day. And, uh, and then when you made a drink, all of those bottles would be in there and each one would be measured out and figured out and chucked in a shaker. Um, and like, you know, it was a long, arduous process. And then you had the garnishes. Um, and I think, you know, more and more, you know, you move in the direction, and I'm not remotely ashamed of saying so, pre-batching a lot more elements to your drink. So you still have mixing and measuring, but like, you know, in a much, much more limited mm-hmm. form. And like, you know, there's one thing I've learned throughout owning all of these bars is that like there is, an, uh, this is a cliche, but I mean, it's a cliche for a reason. There is nothing more important than the guest's experience. And I think, you know, anyone who owns a bar and a successful bar for long enough, like the ego side of it melts away quite quickly um, because, you know, you can be making the most amazing avant-garde drinks in the world, but if your guest is waiting too long to receive it, or if this amazing, beautifully thought-out competition-level drink hasn't been properly explained by the person who's serving it to them, you know, all of that is, uh, is like dust in the wind. You know, if if the guest is like, I don't get this, or they send it back, or they feel like they've waited too long, or they feel like they've not got value, and so, you know, I, it, it's interesting because even now, like you know, you talk about the controversy around Nightjar. I think there was a lot of hating on Nightjar because, because I, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, because basically people didn't really get looked after, um, in the way they might want have wanted to, uh, and obviously there was a very you know strict door policy of no standing uh and we were very clear about that like once you've got a table you can get up you can have a dance or whatever but we're never going to have people standing at the bar um and a lot of that a lot of that just had to do with the fact that we had two stations uh and 75 covers you know <laughs> so like even at the best of times you're going to struggle to 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 get drinks out quickly enough to those people um but i think you know basically what's there was probably a period at the beginning in the first like four or five years where like the drinks took primacy. Um, but over time, you know, and that's from everybody's input in the bar, like the, the customer experience, the guest experience from the moment they the meet the person on the door to the moment they leave is like, you know, that, that has to be the first consideration for everything you do. But, you know, the fact that Nightjar is an independent bar that managed to stay open for 10 years in a market like London speaks to the fact that your consumers loved it. So this means that you've got the balance right, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I think, ironically, I mean, I think obviously there's many reasons why Nightjar is no longer in 50 best, you know, in terms of the way the kind of trends of the industry Mm -hmm. have gone. Um, But I would say that in in many ways, as the as as the bar fell down the fifty best rankings, the guest experience actually got better and better. And I, I would genuinely say that Niger is a better bar now than it was in two thousand and twelve, two thousand and thirteen, two thousand and fourteen, where there's number two, three in Very the world. Very interesting. Great. Uh, so let's talk about uh, Oriol, uh, your uh, second venture. How did the idea came uh, about, and how did you go about opening this one? So, so Oriol, so we'd actually, after about a couple of years, we started thinking about opening another bar because Niger, for one reason or another, it was always profitable. I think, you know, because it was always busy. Um, so we kind of felt, okay, we've got a model that works here. Um, so we were kind of looking for sites. Um, and funnily enough, when you're looking for a site and the first site you've got such a good deal on, it makes you a little bit like Goldilocks. <laughs> and in hindsight, I think we passed up on opportunities. <laughs> All opportunities that like now I'm looking at shit, that was a good deal. But because it wasn't quite as good as Nightjar, we were like, nah, 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 <laughs> we don't want that. Uh, but then when the Science Smithville came up, I don't know, there were, we, we always, we're still in that kind of speakeasy space where like, you know, basement, uh, 
ideally somewhere that doesn't look too pretty outside and then you go in and you have this transition into this kind of marvelous world which is kind of what mm-hmm. Nigel is all about uh somewhere we found this this space in smithfield this huge cavernous old pub that had been closed for a couple of years um and we were kind of enchanted by it like you know it's it's, it's just the scale of it the size of it uh and again having been starved for five years of back of house um you know, and having to like, you know, work around, you know, putting, <laughs> you know, putting all the staff stuff, you know, all the staff clothes were hung up in the electricity cupboard with the with the switchboard on it, and stuff <laughs> like that. So, so all of a sudden, Oriel was like four thousand seven hundred square foot of like really cheap space, um, and it felt like, you know, it felt we'd hit some kind of a gold mine, um, and yeah, as it's often the case, it wasn't quite that simple. Um, so, but but we said like this is where we're going to do it, and we had this dream of a nightclub, like a forties nightclub, you know. And again, that that cinematic thing of like you know, coming down a grand stairway into another world. Um, uh, we also we 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 kind of gone through a few a few different kind of uh, concepts and ideations when we were looking for another site. We had a we had an idea to open a kind of tiki bar called Jungle Bird. Because um, mm-hmm. we also love Jungle Bird cocktail, and uh, so we had that kind of tiki idea, and uh, and then one day it's actually Luca Cinali, who obviously was bar manager uh, opening Oreo, uh, said maybe we can do something like speaky tiki, um, uh, with the obvious thing of like combining kind of elements of Art Deco and that beautiful kind of vintage feel with 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 tiki. Um, and that's where the kind of that's where the jumping off point for Oreo was, you know, of a place that where Nightjar is all about time. You know, the drinks list is goes through a historical journey from prehibition up to up to the Nightjar signature drinks. With Oreo, it was going to be about place and space because it was so big. So you know, we wanted to have drinks that were inspired by places rather than times. And uh, basically, I mean, in hindsight, we got a bit carried away. Um, in what sense <laughs> well because we had this huge space um uh and i think even that even taking on a huge space as your second bar is kind of getting carried away um <laughs> because you we felt obviously kind of um uh, uh invincible you know because we had five years of running this bar out of nothing into a really profitable really well regarded place um and uh so we kind of thought we could do anything and actually, we had so much more to learn. Uh, and the first thing was that, you know, it's all very well getting four and a half thousand square foot of really cheap space, but you still got to fit it out. Um, and like, you know, we'd actually built up quite a lot of capital from running Nightjar that we had in the bank to open another bar. But we ended up having to remortgage our house to open Oriole. <laughs> because it just got so expensive. <laughs> it got yeah. Well, it's just I mean, it was there was nothing down there that we could use. In fact, it cost us nearly two hundred thousand pounds just to get it stripped out to like. So you could actually use the space. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Lots of stuff that we didn't have, and yeah, it's the first, the only job that I've ever had, like a project manager, a quantity surveyor, an M and E consultant. You know, it just it turned into just a behemoth. You know, we had to put everything in, you know, the extraction, we had to put a new power supply in, the air conditioning, and like, it just, it's, I mean, for someone like me, it's so, it was so expensive. Um, but what we got in the end was, uh, you know, the ultimate cocktail bar, I would say. Um, you know, if you've seen behind the sticker Oreo, like everything was bespoke. You know, we sat, we sat down, we did like three or four days with the graphic designer, uh, uh, just sitting with the bar team, the floor team in a space, working out exactly how service was going to work, exactly how the bartender was going to move, how they were going to communicate with each other. Um, and look, you know, I'm, I'm delighted we did it in hindsight because, you know, it, it, it is such a, a beautifully functional space for hospitality. Um, but if I was going to do it again, I would probably try and spend half the money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, sounds good. Uh, but again, that's like, you know, that is a, that's a learning experience of like, you know, 
you get carried away and you kind of like, you know, believe your own hype and you're like, it's fine, we'll make the money back super fast, there's no problem. And uh, of course, it never quite works out that way. And like, you know, it took us, I would say, three, no, nearly four years to make just the money from the fit out back um, of operating Oriole. Did it meet your expectations though? The space and the revenue and, and the engagement with your guests? Yes. I mean, I think Oriole is... It's it's a fantastic bar, and it's I think it's a kind of wish fulfillment kind of place. Um, in many ways, I think people go there for that. It's like a real destination venue, and uh, and, and you know it has always been profitable. But what I would say in terms of the mistake is that we probably took on thirty percent too much floor space, um, because especially if you're doing a bar which is really off pitch, you know, there's no footfall in the poultry market yeah. <laughs> um, you know <laughs> everybody who comes to Oriole is going because they're going to Oriole you know whereas with Nitra people would walk past all the time they'd hear the music coming out they'd go oh what's that the double take go in and check it out um, so I would say so our capacity at Oriole is 130 and in hindsight I'd have done it 100 because you know every single cover you've got comes with its own overheads in terms mm. of staffing and stuff like that um and again, you know, now now that we have no one coming through the door, the costs are much higher than they are somewhere like Niger. Um, <laughs> I th- actually, I'm quite impressed because, you know, it has been profitable and it has worked out. But I would also call it, in hindsight, like in terms of like looking back at everything you did right and wrong, like it was a, it was a folly, you yep. know. Um, and I mean that not as in, as in it was really foolish, but like in the 18th century yeah. sense of like, we're just going to do everything you know, to the max. Um, and I think that's fine, but maybe do that as your 10th bar, not your second yeah. bar. Good advice. <laughs> Would you like to talk to us about some of the artwork that you have around the room? Because it's a stunning room. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that again was, uh, you know, the, the kind of inspiration of the concept. Again, it's about place. It's about travel. It's about being inspired by places, by objects. Uh, and like, you know, we we felt like, we almost had a character who, you know, who owned Oriole, like that inspired it. Who was like, you know, some, uh, you know, a guy who travelled his whole life, you know, spent time in all different places and built this collection of um, of beautiful objects from around the world. And you know, fitting out a place like Oriole is incredibly fun, except for the spending money yep. part. Um, but by far the most fun was sourcing those pieces and buying them. Yeah, we would go on auction rooms the whole time, finding little bits and pieces. If our friend was away in, you know, Indonesia or like, you know, here, there, we'd be like, can you find something for us? Send us a photo. So like, it really was, it was like building a collection over the course of the kind of like six months we were building the place. Uh, and uh, again, it's one of those things where Rosie, as well as being a great musician, she has got a fantastic eye. Uh, and like in terms of design, she's always kind of written the briefs and stuff like that. And I think, you know, Oriole is probably the place more than ever where you see Rosie's eye everywhere. And uh, and actually, it's been fun continuing to kind of collect more things and rotate pieces in and out. Um, and, you know, I now have a sort of mild obsession with Polynesian throwing clubs. <laughs> That's um, a weird one. <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> well, the funny thing is, is I bought a couple of them to put in a display cabinet. And then after we bought them, for some reason, the market for Polynesian... Um, you know, artifacts like real Polynesian stuff kind of exploded <laughs> and all of a sudden these things became quite valuable. Um, and I'm like, shit, you know, maybe I should just become a Polynesian, you know, weapon connector uh, <laughs> to make my fortune that way. I bet I bet when you were in Dublin at university, you didn't think about that as a possible career development. <laughs> no, no, no. But I've always loved beautiful things. I have always loved beautiful things, like, you know, collecting them. So like, you know, that was another kind of bit of wish fulfillment. And, uh, yeah, it's nice. It's nice to feel like it's almost a museum in there. Uh, and, and like you say, I think, you know, the, the, there's few other places in the world where you get that, that sense of transition between what is actually quite an ugly building, the, the poultry market, you know, the Victorian Smithfield buildings are quite nice. The poultry market mm-hmm. is not very well maintained. Uh, and that sense of transition between there into this space, um, and, you know, even after five years walking down those stairs, I always kind of like, yeah, I always feel a little bit of my breath taken away. And, uh, and, and, you know, I think when it comes to bars, like people is the most important thing 
but I think a, a beautiful setting. It comes. Yeah, no, it always helps to to create this atmosphere, right? So, yeah, we talked about Oriol. Uh, now, um, Swift. So when when you decided to open Swift, uh, you were taking over probably an institution of bartending in London, which was Lab, was probably one of those bars that we all kind of really loved in the industry, but we, we could see that it was on a downwards trajectory and it's been so for a while. And then mm-hmm. we heard that the venue was closing down. And then I can tell you for a fact that as an industry individual, hearing the fact that you guys were taking it over sort of like gave me a breath of fresh air because I thought, you know what, this is going to be, you know, it could have been a KFC for all that matters because you never know who takes over this venue yeah. in central London. But then knowing that you guys were going to take it over sort of made me feel that you're going to respect the heritage of, of that venue. So would you like to talk to us about how did you come across this opportunity and how did you guys go about it? Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, it's it's interesting actually because, you know, as I said, we've been waiting to open uh, another bar for a while for the right thing to come along when Oriol was done. And we actually had another concept as well the, to, to you know that we thought about putting in other places we'd looked at. Um, which was inspired, funnily enough, by uh, Boadas oh, in Barcelona, awesome. which again I think is is a I you know it's there's something about it that is quite magic. I think obviously when bars have been around that long, they they take on a patina, they take on almost like a soul of their own. But this idea that you go in, you stand up, and you drink a perfect classic or two or three, and then you go. Um, and I didn't feel like we didn't feel like there was anything like that in mm-hmm. in, in the UK, and so the the kind of the, the the embryo, if you like, of Swift was in wanting to do something like that, something a bit more continental, uh, and, and a place where you would come in and have a few Swift drinks and then move on to whatever you know next would happen in your life, or stay the whole life, you know, <laughs> as the case might be. Uh, so, so we had that idea, and, and, and the other side of that idea, obviously, was like a flip side of the nightjar and Orioles of this world, where everything is elaborate and, and ornate, and, and, and the whole experience is kind of curated with music and table service. You know, we wanted that. Yeah, that doing that is hard work. You know, it's hard work for everybody. Maintaining it is hard work, uh, and we kind of thought, you know, the next bar we do, we want it to be simpler. You know. Uh, we want it to still to be beautiful. We still want it to be completely driven by guest experience, but we want less bells and whistles. You know, makes sense, like. absolutely. Uh, and and so a place like that, I think, you know, it needs to be a footfall area. And so we wanted a place in Soho to open it. Um, and generally, good sites in Soho don't come up a lot. And again, it really was coincidence. An agent came to us and said, "Look, I've got." I've been instructed on um, on this site in Soho. And to start off with, I didn't even realise it was Lab. Oh, really? Because obviously there's a lot of bars mm-hmm. on Compton Street. It was only when when uh, when I actually went to view it, I was like, oh, shit, this is Lab. No way. <laughs> so it was uh, by chance, basically. Yeah. <laughs> it was completely by... Look, I'm telling you, most of the shit that happens to me is just <laughs> chance. <laughs> uh, it was. It, it very much wasn't like we are going to take on Lab because it's fallen on hard times and it's not doing very well. The truth of the matter is that the owner of Lab at the time, and it had changed hands multiple times by that point. I mean, you wouldn't believe how many different lease assignments there had been. Uh, the, the owner at the time, I think, was basically she was a you know she was a hobbyist. Um, she kind of her husband had bought her the bar because he thought it would keep her occupied almost. And I wish I had such husband. Yeah, <laughs> tell me about it. Uh, to be well, I can tell you, you'd have done a hell of a sight better of keeping Lab alive than uh, than <laughs> yeah. her. And like you know, it, you know, I, I, you know, Lab is always an amazing place. But you know, I, I think by the end it was kind of playing. It's greatest hits on repeat. No, you no, hundred percent. Yeah, um, it, tell. it needed some love for sure. But at the same time, we knew uh, we knew that it came with a huge amount of baggage, and like you know, we did we we, we felt we felt very very clear of how much respect uh, the site needed, and uh, and so it was a big challenge in that respect. And actually, uh, I think it was probably two or three years earlier, some there was an opportunity to buy Trailer Happiness. Oh. Um, and I'm actually very glad we didn't do that afterwards. <laughs> um, I think this was 
at the point just before Rich Hunt bought it alongside, oh, who else was it? I can't remember. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very glad that didn't happen um, <laughs> for obvious reasons. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the other thing with Swift that we knew, because by this point we had two kids, um, was that we couldn't do it on our own. You know, we did our, I mean, obviously we did, we did, we did our own Nightjar with the help of fantastic people who actually, you know, a lot of the key people did get small shareholdings to, to, you know, mm-hmm. to make them feel really part of the project. But this time we knew we needed partners, you know, we needed really like, consular operators. Partners, yeah. uh, exactly. We needed actual partners. We needed, you know, operating partners. Um, and again, you know, well, this time actually I can take credit to say this wasn't by chance. We actually drew up a short list of people that we thought would make a good partner. Um, and Bobby and me were pretty much top of the list. Um, even though we didn't know them that well, but I knew both of them individually and what they'd done in different bars. Uh, and, and I loved the fact that they were a husband and wife team that were looking to do something together. Obviously, they'd, they'd opened High Water and then, you know, things hadn't worked out there. And they were looking to do something as a husband and wife. Mm-hmm. And having worked at that point for six years as a husband and wife of Rosie and, and having, having had it work really, really well, we, we kind of like the idea. I mean, like, you know, I, I'm well aware that, that, you know, it's not always how it works, <laughs> you know, um, that husbands and wives work, work well together. Um, but, you know, I always think, you know, when you're, when you're teaming up with people, two is always better than one and people are much less likely to fall out permanently if they're married. <laughs> so, yeah, no, good point, um, absolutely. Uh, but, 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 you know, more to the point, they're both consumer operators, like, you know, the best in the business from my point of view. And so we're very, very lucky that again, when we, when we, when we approached them, they were at a stage where they were thinking, okay, what are we going to do now? What's our next move? Um, and it's funny. They say we, we, t- we took him, we took him uh, to Ozone to have some lunch and like, we didn't tell him what it was about at all. And they, they said like, Oh my God, are they, have we said something wrong on social media? Seriously? Or something? <laughs> like, they, yeah, they, they were worried we were going to like, you know, so. get shit or something. Um, they didn't know us by that point. Uh, they didn't know us well anyway. And, uh, and so, yeah, we just, we just laid it out there and said, you know, we need some people to, to, to do this concept. And I think, you know, also, the style of Bobby's drinks and Mia's drinks is perfectly suited to what Swift is about. Um, and obviously, you know, since they opened it, they've shaped the bar in its entirety. And, you know, again, I, I feel immensely, immensely grateful to have worked with those two guys and the teams that they've put together over the years. Um, I mean, Swift is just over four years old now. It's kind of crazy. It's already four years old. Whoa. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, and, you know, obviously all relationships kind of take work, but we're like, you know, we've, we've always felt really comfortable in, 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 in the way we work together, uh, you know, in that we're able to kind of take a sort of backseat in many ways. Like, you know, we sit down with them once a month, we go through how things are going. Um, but those guys are, they're the heart and soul of that bar. And you know, I love it with all of my heart. Um, but I can't claim in the same way as Nigel and Oriol for it to have been like my baby from the start. No, of course. You know, yeah, of course. They're completely different venues as well. But, you know, I, I think uh, it speaks uh, a lot about y- you guys, you and your wife as, as business operators, because, I mean, you've opened uh, like some great venues and you've been successful 100% of the times, which is it's very rare, you know. Like, I mean, in our industry, bars they have a very limited lifespan nowadays. So... It, it's great to yeah. see. Uh, speaking of which, um, the, you opened in 2008 and nine. You mentioned there were some similarities in between that period of time and, and now. Uh, how do you feel this industry is going to react to this uh, to this crisis? Well, um, we're going to bounce back because that's what we always do. Um, and I do believe that there will be some brilliant entrepreneurs, some of whom we've probably never heard of, who are going to open outstanding bars in the next two, three, four years because the opportunities are going to be out there. Um, at the same time, unfortunately, I think a lot of really good bars are going to close. Um, bars that do not deserve it. Some bars maybe that have just opened and were starting to do well, but just didn't have the capital to maintain this level of attrition and losses as we've been experiencing. Uh, so that makes me really sad. Um, 
I mean, I, 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 I'm not going to pull my punches here because I, I am feeling quite melancholy, I'll be honest with you, about, mm-hmm. about the industry. Um, I think that we may be seeing the end of an era. Um, I hope not, but I think that there's a, this com- the combination of COVID and Brexit has been really, really toxic to our industry. Um, and, and, I, and I think that that's got more to do with people than anything else. Because obviously, you know, the end of freedom of movement, I think, is, yeah, I've written many fucking columns about it. <laughs> I've written many columns about, about, you know, the harm that it's going to do to our industry. But I think that it was something that we could, we could deal with then. You know, sure, a tap of excellent, highly skilled bartenders, waiters from the house from Europe was being turned off. Um, but I felt like we have such an amazing presence of, of these people. Um, and I think, you know, without these people, without the Italians, the Slovakians, the Czechs, the Polish, the Spanish, the French, our industry wouldn't be what it is now. It wouldn't be anywhere near it. Uh, and I think, you know, <laughs> looking at the people you interview in your podcast, looking at yourself, that's like a clear testament to that. Um, but I feel like I felt like we had a supply. We had this great kind of stratum of hospitality professionals in the UK who were like, okay, this is my home. This is where I'm going to make my career. This is going to be where I open my bar or start my, you know, consultancy business or, you know, become brand ambassador, whatever it might be. You know, we had these people locked in to our industry. And so it would be hard, but at least we had this core of talent. And look, don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking the amazing British people in the industry, but, you know, I think it's the professionalism that you guys, you Europeans, brought to our industry transformed it forever. Um, and I think that we are some way now down the road of, of being in a place where British people look at the hospitality industry and think it's something they want to make their life into. Um, but I don't think we're there yet. And I think I fear that the COVID alongside Brexit has really mixed things up nastily because, unfortunately, I'm now seeing a lot of really great hospitality professionals Europeans, English as well, being like, I can't do this anymore. You know, I don't have the income. So either they're saying I'm going home or they're saying I'm looking for another career. And I really fear that we are going to lose a lot of our brightest and best over the next few months. Um, and and, and I, I, so, I feel so powerless because there's so little we can do about it. I'm like, we've managed to pretty much keep our teams intact since the beginning of this. That, you know, there are so many brilliant, brilliant people who've been made redundant or who found themselves just on furlough or too long and obviously without the trunk. It's basically starvation wages people are getting from the job retention scheme. So I don't want to paint too dark a picture, but I think that we are going to have one hell of a job on our hands in terms of maintaining the standards that we've set ourselves over the last 10, 15 years in hospitality. Uh, and I think there's a real danger that the standards will slip and that people will stop looking for that level of quality in restaurants as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not saying we're going to go back to the 70s and 80s and 90s by any means, but I think we've got a challenge on our hands. And I think the challenge is twofold. It's, it's, it's finding a way to still recruit the best people from other countries, Europe, Japan, States. You know, I suppose the one, the one, the one benefit of leaving the EU is that, you know, hopefully we'll be able to uh, lobby towards forming a route towards any talented person to come and work in our industry. But if we're not there yet, and we're a long way off. Um, and the second is, of course, to to actually maintain the feeling that, you know, a, a British person coming out of school or university can say, you know what, I want to learn to make cocktails. Um, and there's still not enough people, you know. Most people who get into hospitality, you ask most British people, even the people at the very, very top, and I can guarantee you that 50-60% of those are, you know, said, oh yeah, I, you know, I was bartending at university or whatever, and I just ended up doing a little bit more, and I had a little fun, and then I got, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, it's I kind of like that. falling. Whereas, you know, you listen, you listen to Giuseppe's podcast that you did with him the other day, and this is a guy who went to hospitality school, you know, he knew what he wanted. And I look at people like Luca, Luca Cinali, Gabriele, these people who went to hospitality school who knew that this is their career. And uh, and I think we're going to have a shortage of those people. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's down to us in the hospitality industry to find a way to 
keep those people we've got, to hold them close, to look after them. You know, um, I, you know I, I'll be honest. I was I was really shocked and I was kind of disgusted by the kind of mass redundancies that some of the big hotel groups yeah. were doing. Um, I just thought, guys, fine, you might be able to recruit a whole lot of good people, but you're spinning out the brightest and the best. Yeah, I guess we'll see the repercussions of this uh, like within the next few years. Well, yeah, and I think people need to feel valued, you know. This is something I feel a lot of anger about, um, you know, the way that hospitality has been treated and scapegoated by the government. Like, you know, obviously, I'm in no way am I a lockdown skeptic, in no way am I, you know, a COVID skeptic. Like, you know, <laughs> we've had a tear to our own family. Mm-hmm. Um, Sorry to but hear the that. way in which all of the pain was laid at our door, you know, and uh, I think I don't think that people feel valued very much in hospitality at the moment. Yeah, hopefully this will give us the energy to change uh, to change this in the future. I think it's a, a, you know it's good because I think for the first time we actually started to talk about this because it was something that was sort of like a subject that we always pushed aside because it it's such, we're such a busy industry that I don't think. I think sometimes we fail at looking at the bigger picture. So perhaps this is a good opportunity for us to start to look at that. Yeah, I think so. So to close on a positive note, um, the last two questions for you. The first one, why did you choose names of birds for all your bars? Well, okay, so uh, we chose bird names for a variety of reasons. The first thing is that my, my grandmother was a really keen like ornithologist, if you want to call her. Yeah, She was a, a lover of birds. She lived in the countryside and whenever... Whenever she would take, whenever we'd go to visit her, like we'd go on walks and we, she would teach us to identify birds and bird song and stuff like that. And so, like, that's always been like at the core of me, just an interest in birds and love of birds. Um, and then when it came about to uh, opening, we wanted something that referenced the, the, the song and the music as well as, as well as the drinks, of course. And initially we actually thought of the nightingale because obviously the nightingale has got a beautiful mm-hmm. song. But there's there's probably 500 pubs called the Nightingale across the British Isles, <laughs> and we wanted something a little bit more, a bit more niche. I guess. <laughs> so yeah, that's what we said on the night jar because obviously it's got the kind of jar in it as well. Like you know, come and have a jar with me. So it kind of felt a bit more a drinks related. Uh, and then having having opened one with a bird name, we thought you know we want there to be a kind of theme running through everything that we do, um, and you know. But A, we both have birds, and B, it's a way of, of representing, you know, the fact that we're a group, but also that each bar has got its own very clear and separate identity. Um, so I guess, you know, it's like we're all we're all part of a family, but we're different breeds. I guess, yeah, you just kill two birds with one stone, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> birds with a feather fly Great. together. Yeah. <laughs> very last question for you. Uh, if you could choose your very last drink, what would that be? Um, I think it would probably be a sweet Manhattan with something like uh, Eagle Rare single barrel, like with a really smooth, gorgeous bourbon. Um, it's it's the go-to drink for me at Manhattan. So, yeah, definitely my last drink. Fabulous. <laughs> my first drink is always <laughs> my first drink is always a Gibson. Oh, great! So, cool. uh, so I think you'll have a Gibson <laughs> first, and then you just close with a Manhattan, and that's it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> if I'm allowed to, then that's that's a no-brainer. <laughs> Fabulous. Edmund, it was amazing to talk to you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Michele. It was a pleasure. And uh, yeah, all the very best. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Edmund. We are unjiggered underscore media on Instagram, and you can follow our personal accounts at mmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J. Murphy for myself, and Adrian Besser for Adrian. Thank you for listening.